Welcome to Actions Antidotes, your antidote to the mindset that keeps you settling for less. Today, I'd like to switch gears with you a little bit, and I'd like to talk to you about birding. Now, this is a topic that we have yet to discuss on this particular podcast because it's a type of experience that people either know a lot about or know very little about. Some people get really, really into birding, and some people just don't know much about it. But in life, there's going to be a lot of experiences like that, and it's good to be exposed to the large depth of experiences that there are out there. According to my guest today, Ryan Dabala of Birding Man Adventures, birding is a great way for people to get outdoors and connect into nature. Ryan, welcome to the program. Pleasure to be here, Steve. Thanks for having me. Oh, thank you so much. And Ryan, tell me about your experience with birding. What made birding be the thing that you wanted to, first of all, do a lot of yourself and also bring to others? Right after college, I was working as a biologist on Santa Catalina Island. Oh, nice. And we were actually restoring bald eagles to the national park after a massive decline in numbers due to DDT, which I'm sure many people are familiar with DDT and, and, and what it did as it worked its way up the food chain, essentially with the raptors, like bald eagles would deplete their eggshells of calcium. So the nesting eagles would crush the eggs and then that would prevent successful recruitment ultimately. So we were actually involved in the direct manipulations of eggs and chicks on the islands, eagles nests. So of course I was around other birders. I had my first pair of binoculars and a spotting scope, and I was able to tune into some of the smaller birds on the island. That particular island has several different endemics that only occur there, like many islands have. They, they have species that only can be found on those islands. So I think I saw it was a Hutton's Vireo, a Catalina Hut, Hutton's Vireo, and that, that might have been my my gateway bird, I guess you could call it. <laughs> <laughs> a gateway bird. Never heard itself that bird, way before. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So ever since that moment, I've really been paying attention to the birds around me. I, you know, I've found that it, it really slows me down. It kind of helps me focus. We have these weapons of mass distraction in our pockets and we're always on them. These cell phones that distract us from the world and, and prevent us from tuning into what's in front of our, our eyes at the, at the present moment. And so as a result, you know, we've seen a lot more ADD and NDD nature deficit disorder and realizing that going out into nature and slowing down and looking at the world as it is right around me, that that's helped center me and, and relieve a lot of anxiety that has come about from the world that we live in with so much technology. So that's one of many reasons that I continue to bird today. I can certainly go into more of the reasons why I think it's an amazing pursuit and something that more people should do. What does birding entail? Like if let's say these podcasts usually come out on Tuesdays and if you're listening middle of the week and someone says, all right, you know, this sounds really interesting. I want to go birding on Saturday. What is that day going to look like? So it can look like a million different things. Oh, wow. It can be you sitting with a coffee in your backyard, looking at your bird feeder and birding for 10 minutes. That's an act of birding where you're looking at what comes to your feeder and you can just take it in leisurely and make notes. Maybe you already know what you're seeing because you've seen it for the last however many years you've been looking at your feeder, or maybe you don't. So maybe it has you picking up a field guide, flipping through the pages, playing this little match game, trying to figure out what exactly did I just see? So it can be 10 minutes in your backyard looking at your feeder, or it can be 
24 hour birdathon actually this week. My wife Angie and I and a couple of friends of ours are going to head out for a, a 24 hour period. And I'm going to put those 24 hours in quotation marks because it's probably not going to be quite 24 hours. Yeah, it's a long time to stay up in one without sleeping, yeah. but some people do it. I know. Yeah. So it, it's, it's essentially this idea of going out and trying to find as many birds as you can in, in 24 hours. You go out during the day, you go out during the morning, you take breaks, you probably go out at night, maybe do some owling. And throughout the day, you're just trying to make that list as big as you can. So you're going to visit a variety of different habitats. You're going to maximize the environments that you're in so you can see more birds. And you generally try to line that day up with optimal weather patterns. So you want to get a day where the birds are migrating, or you can also get a day where if you're looking at the weather patterns, you can if you're lucky, you can kind of line up with what we call a fallout where you have all of these birds that are exhausted after migrating for however long, generally over large geographic areas, they could be oceans. For example, the Gulf of Mexico is a great example where they come onto the coast of Mississippi or Louisiana and they just fall out because they're so exhausted and then they spend time in this area. So you, you kind of think about the weather patterns, what they're doing, where you're going. Maybe you're going to a place where fallouts are more regular and then you can maximize the number of birds that you see that way. So depending on how intense you want to get about it, it can be this really intricate thing where you're looking at the weather patterns, you're looking at what's been seen previously or within the previous 24 hours so that you know what you should be looking for at a particular place at a particular time. So a couple questions. First, on a goofier note. So uh, a few weeks ago, I was walking my dog in... Uh, City Park, which is a park uh, kind of a little bit east of downtown Denver. And there was a bunch of birds sitting in that big pond there. And my dog kind of looked at them and then started running after them. Does this thing mean that my dog qualifies as a birder? <laughs> I'd say so. I'd say so. Your dog is generally <laughs> interested in the birds, and, but you know, probably going to want to eat those birds when it gets to them. So yeah, that seems a little bit off the, the actual <laughs> purpose. My other question is that given that birding is about slowing down and spending some time in nature, if you do one of these birdathons where you're trying to see as many species of bird in one day, does that have the potential to detract from the original mission to slow down? Absolutely. You know, I think that if you have the end all goal in mind of seeing as many species as you possibly can, you start to get away from what really makes birding special. And uh, some of you may have seen the movie, The Big Year with Steve Martin, Black Jack, 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 Jack Black. Black. <laughs> Jack Black. I think Owen Wilson was in that movie as well, but it, it tells the story of these individuals that are doing a big year. They're trying to find as many species of birds in one year as they possibly can. This is one of the pursuits of, of avid birders. And it gets cutthroat, just like anything else. Any other hobby can get cutthroat where, where people are doing whatever it is they can to get the job done yep. <laughs> and pushing anybody away or just forgetting about what it means to be a good person. It's a really funny movie, but in my personal opinion, it definitely gets away from this idea of slowing down and being in nature and actually birding. And what I found is most special is when you just kind of go out and you stand there and you let the birds come to you, you know, you kind of slow down, you can even meditate 
work some meditation into it, focus on your breathing and just look at what's coming in, in the world around you. My wife, Angie and I, if we're going to go out for a hike, Angie always has to specify, right. Are we going to go birding? Or are we going to go hiking? Because there's a mm-hmm. difference, right? So yeah. if, if we're hiking, that means we have a destination. We want to get to that destination and get back. If we're going birding, there is no destination. It's always an adventure. It's always a surprise. We could find ourselves in a place that we never imagined going to, you know, just the other day I was at a place called Lowell Ponds. It's, it's fairly close to where I am. It's in the sort of the Northern Denver Metro area. Mm-hmm. And I would have never gone to this spot if it wasn't for birding, but I was there and I was exploring new terrain and, and I saw a lot of great birds. Our approach is we're going to visit four different places in each of those spots. We'll probably stay for two hours. So mm. you can call us weaklings if you want, because we're definitely not going to be anywhere close to 24 hours. But what we're going to do is it's going to be quality time, not necessarily the quantity of time. And we're going to go out there and we're just going to basically be patient. We're going to stand, we're going to look, we're going to watch and, and see what comes to us. And it's just fun. You know, we, we actually do this as a, it's a fundraiser for Denver Audubon, which is an organization that we feel very passionate about. We've been, oh, we wow. actually both, yeah, we both got our master naturalist certifications through Denver Audubon. And so we've been volunteering with them and leading bird walks and just trying to get engaged and trying to get other people engaged. And one of the, the beautiful things about birding is the community. And, and we've met a lot of amazing people through Denver Audubon. So they have this annual birdathon that they do. First of all, just for the audience, what is Denver Audubon? What's their mission? It doesn't have anything to do with the highway system. <laughs> yeah, I, I bet there are some people that might have been thinking about the German highway system, but Denver Autobahn, like what's the mission of the organization? The mission of the organization is to conserve birds through education, research, and conservation actions. It's in Littleton. It's actually in Chatfield State Park. They have a nature center that's there. So in the southwestern part of the Denver metro area. And they regularly have activities that they organize. They have nature walks. The first week of the month, they organize these walk the wetlands walk. They get people together who are actually planting mm-hmm. native species in their, in their perennial garden. And they also have children's programs. Nice. Uh, they, have the, they have the master naturalist program. So they have certification and training programs that you can sign up for that directly support the organization through the funds that are generated. So it's a wonderful organization. There are Audubon chapters throughout the state of Colorado and throughout every state in the United States. So we're all doing work that kind of supports the same mission. It's just Denver Audubon is located closest to us. And so we've chosen them to spend more time with and to work more closely with them. In essence, what I'm doing with Birding Man Adventures is I'm ultimately looking to support local organizations and charity organizations that ultimately will conserving bird populations and also conserving the land that they need and the land that will protect them. So how did Birding Man Adventures initially come about? Like you had this island experience and forgive me, I'm forgetting the name of the island where you discovered your gateway bird and you discovered that you loved it. What brought you to wanting to start Birding Man Experiences and wanting to do it for the Autobahn Society? So my passion in life is connecting with people through nature and, and having a positive influence on someone's overall environmental consciousness it is where I, I feel most rewarded if I can have an interaction with someone that ultimately ends up in us both feeling more empowered to protect our planet. You know, th- there's a difference between someone who 
likes to go to a national park and see wildlife and then someone who cares deeply about acting in their best interest for all living things, right? Yeah, we've seen the other example, people pulling out tripods three feet from a grizzly bear and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, we call those torons. <laughs> There's actually a page on Instagram that I follow called Torons of Yellowstone, and it just shows people in, in their worst light. You know, we're, we're, we're loving our national parks to death, and that does a good job of showing how we're doing that, unfortunately. Oh yeah. No, I've read about that, how the number of visitors there, you might as well have people living there sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's gotten insane, which can lead us down a whole rabbit hole of conversation. But, um, you know, a lot of the parks are implementing permit systems now, which I'm in Rocky Mountain National Park a lot with my work and, you know, um, they have a reservation system now. Reservation system. Exactly. And even in their backcountry permits, they now have a limited number of backcountry permits. They do hold walk-in permits, so you can always go in and get a walk-in permit, but online, there's a limited number of permit. We're all happy that people have discovered this love of national parks and this love of observing nature, but kind of wishing that there was a, a more effective way to keep it open and keep it preserved. And so you were talking about this line of consciousness in the connections that you're building. I guess the goal of my interactions with people on my tours is to get them to slow down along with mm -hmm. me, get myself to slow down, get them tuned into nature on a deeper level in a way that inspires them uh, to do what they can to protect it. And, you know, I, I'm really not interested in just attracting experienced birders. I'm actually just as interested or even more interested in attracting people who have never birded a day in their life or don't know a thing about it. And getting people into nature that don't necessarily get there. You know, what, what, one of the other things I do on my, on my tours is I lead camping trips. So I provide all the gear for camping. So it might just be an overnight trip out of the city where you've never been camping before. Or maybe you have been camping, you just don't have the gear and you don't want to think about the logistics of cooking and, and the food and everything that you need. So just getting people out into nature who want to be there or, or who have never been there that, that are interested in it. and then gradually kind of introducing them to some of these things like birds. Of course, mammals are also, people are always excited to see in Rocky, I call it the big five mammals, you know, there's, there's that. Oh yeah. The moose, the elk. Yeah. The mule deer, the elk, the moose, the bighorn sheep, the black bears, if you're lucky. So people love to see those. And, and when it comes to birds, it's just like, oh, it's just a, just a little brown jobby, you know, who cares about that thing? But the really cool thing about the birds is that you start to ask more questions. You start to look at the phenology or sort of the seasonal changes of the plants that these birds are using. And we look at how those change and how they change from year to year. When you start going out and asking the questions that a, that a naturalist asks, you just become so embedded in the natural world in a way that to me, it's atomic, you know, it's this healer, uh, just, just, just being in the world, asking questions and seeing how it's changing around us and seeing how every living thing is interacting. You just open up the next level and the next level and the next level. And before you know it, you're, you're looking at tiny insects and you're curious about things that you never would even stop to pay attention to. I know my first thought has always been like, okay, you know, birds are just birds. This one's red, this one's blue. I guess it's kind of cool until you kind of start looking more at some of the details, more at some of the specifics. And I'm guessing that's similar for a lot of other people as well. Absolutely. You can get as deep into the weeds as you want, but 
just, just starting to pay attention. Right. And something as simple as getting a pair of binoculars and learning how to use a pair of binoculars is an amazing addition to your life. It, it, it changed my life when I got my first pair of binoculars. Yeah. I can imagine just like, you know, a microbiologist would probably tell you, wow, ever since I got that microscope, life hasn't been the same. On your tours, you tend to go to some sort of a habitat area, open field, something like that, and spend like a couple hours in one place, being patient, being waiting for the birds, observing the birds. Does that have a transformation on, say, the rest of someone's life in some other areas where even if you're in the city and you're, say, walking around, you're more likely to notice the specific bricks on the building over there or the specific facial expression or group dynamics and some group of people across the street and some of the other things that we encounter in our urban lives for those of us that live in large metropolitan areas or cities. I would like to think so. You know, as long as I've been birding, I still feel like I could be a much more observant person, you know, and I do things where I'm just like, how did I miss that? You know? (laughs) Oh yeah. But, But I, but I definitely think that it starts to sharpen the sword a little bit when it comes to paying attention to the world around us. Mm -hmm. There's certainly um, this wonderful cognitive component behind it where when you start birding and you start identifying species, but it really helps to generate this library of resources in your own mind, right? So you're, so you're, you're remembering field marks or a variety of field marks that are unique to a particular species of bird you start with sort of the size and the shape of the bird and you can, you can immediately start to categorize the bird into a family of birds. And then from there, you, you might have two birds, two species of birds that are remarkably similar. And it might only be the perspective of the bill. That is the main thing that you use to differentiate the two. So you're really honing in on these finite details. And there's even more than just that. It's, it's the experience in the field. The longer you spend in the field, looking at these things, you really start to feel them out and get this intuition of the gestalt of the actual bird. So yes, I think all these things are improved the more time you spend birding. Certainly as, as we age and as we have cognitive decline, birding is a wonderful thing to keep your, your brain active. Birding by ear is a wonderful way to learn a new language. I actually spend time listening to bird calls and songs just so I can walk out in the woods and know what's singing around me because that's really that's what's going to tune me into where the bird is and what bird to look for in the first place. You could be woken up by some sort of sound and easily just, you know, based on your knowledge, know, oh, that damn sparrow, you know exactly what kind of bird it was that woke you up. And it just really informs what obscenity you're going to yell when you're (laughs) unexpectedly woken up at an hour of the morning that it's too early or something like that. If I could only kill that mockingbird right now. <laughs> <laughs> so the other thing I'm wondering is you talk about this cognitive decline with age and, um, you know, how kind of learning some of the stuff about birds can help reduce that cognitive decline, help keep your brain sharp. What do you think is the worst thing someone can do for cognitive decline? Not moving. I'd say it's um, number one, not, not sedentary, moving. Yeah. Movement is medicine, right? And so being, being sedentary... Also, I think we spend way too much time passively learning instead of actively learning. And so sitting there and watching the boob tube all night long, having things funneled to us is in no way an active pursuit in developing our brain. 
And so I think that if you can minimize the time that you spend behind a screen watching television, I think if you actively continue to read and exercise and pursue a practice, you know, whether it's meditation or whether it's art or whether it's birding, those are really good, great, great ways to keep your mind active. But I'd say the very worst thing you could do is just to sit around and not move. That makes sense uh, for sure. And I'm sure a lot of, a lot of people do that. I have tons of ideas and a constant struggle of trying to reduce this like kind of passive content consumption where the algorithm is determining what you're watching. And sometimes, well, I mean, the algorithm is not your friend, right? Like if you're going on to YouTube and say, I'm really interested in, I'm just going to pick something random, learning a little bit more about medieval history. And you type that into the search and you find a really informative video. That's like something completely different than just scroll and whatever pops up, just let it keep playing for sure. The one other thing I wanted to cover is that, you know, in your life, you've managed to set up a little bit of a different setup from the average person, but you have a couple of different ventures that all kind of funnel into the same general idea of building connection, but kind of takes you to a variety of different places. Absolutely. The only way I have been, have really been able to pursue starting my own business is because I've had these other work opportunities on the side. So actually part-time, I work doing sales and business development for a company called Learn From Travel. We're actually a, a third-party provider for study abroad programs. So I've been able to do a lot of remote work. Also, I've been able to travel internationally with that job. Actually, in June, I'm headed to Ecuador oh, nice. to, to, to meet with some faculty members that are scouting for their trips and you know, ensuring that the safety and security situation is all set before they bring students to those countries. So that's that's been a wonderful opportunity to continue using my Spanish. I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Ecuador and learned Spanish. And that's that's also something that I offer on, on my tours is you know, Spanish fluency and wanting to get more Latinos and Spanish-speaking people engaged in the outdoors and connected to, to the outdoors through birding. And then I also guide, you know, I've been guiding for a while too, for another company, but starting my own company is really a way that I can create more leverage to do the things I want to do with my money. Right. And when you're working for somebody else, you don't necessarily have that capacity. So for me, it's really important that I can set my situation up in a way where I know that I'm going to have a certain amount of money left over to support the causes that I truly believe in. And that's the that's the trade-off with uh, entrepreneurship in general, because starting something on your own is always going to take a little bit more effort. There's always going to be a little bit more uncertainty going on. Like you're ultimately responsible for how many people show up and you know, how to like kind of handle any other fire that needs to be put out, you know, the buck stops with you, but the trade-off of course, is that autonomy, that being able to like make those decisions and build what you want to build sometimes when and where you want to build them as opposed to having someone else dictate that for you. And so how has that journey been for you with these two other part-time endeavors, as well as your own company? How much of that autonomy do you have right now? Yeah. So that's often tricky to balance the work needs and the responsibilities of different jobs. But I feel pretty lucky because I I have the time where I can schedule things out and I don't overcommit to any one of those things. It's not like 
all those jobs are full-time jobs and I never make promises that I can't keep. And so I think that Mm -hmm. that has so far worked itself out pretty well. I think once my business uh, starts to get more busy, I'll probably have to dial back some of those other things that I'm working on. And I hope that that's the case, right? Where I can actually fully engage in in, in what I'm most passionate about. You know, I, I was actually particularly galvanized by a 2019 study in the journal science, which documented the loss of close to 3 billion birds in North America since 1970. So it's actually, it's known as the 3 billion bird study and scientists use data from the breeding bird Atlas. And they actually reported that North American bird populations have dropped by almost 30% since 1970. So we've lost one in four birds in just 50 years. And we're not just talking about rare birds. We're talking about common backyard birds, like, you know, dark eyed juncos that a lot of us are used to seeing under our feeders every day. So this indicates a general shift in our ecosystem's ability to support basic bird life. And so for me, that's like, wow, how can we let this happen in front of our eyes? And and why is this happening? And you start to look at what are the causes of this decline and, and, Habitat loss is is definitely the number one culprit. Deforestation, agriculture, wetlands, degradation. And so there are a number of things that we can do to sort of offset that. I think one of the biggest things anybody can do is restore habitats that have been degraded or or just keep habitats that are still in their pristine condition as pristine as possible. And I can do that by supporting organizations that you know buy and protect land and, and, and try to restore land that's already been degraded. And, and that's ultimately what I'm aiming to do with Birding Man Adventures is I've committed to donating 5% of my proceeds to charity organizations that purchase land and restore land. So things like the Nature Conservancy or the American Bird Conservancy, Rainforest Trust, Denver Audubon. Denver Audubon doesn't do that exactly, but they're more on the education side where, where we can inspire more people to actually be doing these types of things. If I can do that with my money, if I can help to protect land, at the end of the day, I'm going to be really content. You might be wondering, you know, what are the things that we can do in response to this massive decline of birds? And there are Mm -hmm. a number of things that we can do. Obviously, there are things like buying coffee that's good for birds, like shade-grown coffee or keeping that coffee. coffee, So So coffee can be bad for birds. I'm just... I never would have thought about that when, when purchasing coffee for some reason. It just it wouldn't have crossed my mind. Oh, absolutely. If you're buying conventional sun-grown coffee, that coffee's been planted on deforested land. So instead, if you're looking for a label that says shade-grown, which is incredibly hard to find, most major grocery stores aren't carrying shade-grown coffee anymore. Starbucks was carrying it for a while. I don't know why they're not. I know it's more expensive to produce it, and it's more expensive to actually buy it, which makes sense. It's sort of this, it's this added value, right? Because you are incentivizing people to keep shade trees and grow their coffee under the shade. And those trees are vital for migratory birds that move through those areas. Shade grown, like S-H-A-D-E grown coffee is what someone should be looking for. Shade grown coffee. Trader Joe's carries an Ethiopian shade grown coffee. That's typically where I'll get it, but also you can find it online. There's birds and beans is a good option. Smithsonian carries a line of bird-friendly coffee. 
So that's one way, you know, you can eat less beef, right? Or eat grass-fed beef that's been sustainably raised. Of course, the livestock industry uses a lot of water and wetlands are drying out. So water birds are losing habitat. So these are a few things that we can do, but right at home in our backyard, we can focus on planting the right combination of species. This is something that anybody can do. Doug Tallamy, he's an ecologist. He actually just wrote a a really great book. It's called Nature's Best Hope. And the idea is just planting as much as you can in your backyard of your garden with native species. We'll often just Mm -hmm. plant whatever the landscape architect says. Are you talking more about like the landscaping, the lawn, or are you talking more about the vegetable gardens that a lot of people grow? I'm talking about the lawn. I'm talking about cutting back on the lawn, on the actual grass in your lawn. Of course, in a place like Denver, planting more of a xeriscape or more drought tolerant species are going to make a lot of sense. And the Mm -hmm. native species that occur here are naturally more drought tolerant because this is naturally a drier area. So planting those species or as many as you can is going to do wonderful things for birds. A good friend of mine, Edwina Van Gaal, she's a landscape architect. She lives in Long Island. She actually started... Oh, that's where I'm from. (laughs) Okay, nice. So maybe you know her. Uh, She's pretty well-respected landscape architect. She started a an organization called Two Thirds for the Birds. And Doug Tallamy is actually, he's an advisor for the organization. I am also an advisor on that organization. It's 234birds.org. And the idea is just to plant two thirds of your plants in your garden uh, with native species. So focus on the natives and you can find native plants from Colorado in a variety of places. There's the um, Colorado Native Plant Society has really good information. Is there an easy way, no matter where someone lives, to like identify it? Like if someone driving around town naturally sees this type of grass, it's more likely to be a native species to their particular region? Not necessarily. We have a lot of invasive species that have gotten out in the landscape. And so just what you're seeing on the roadside might not be native. It might be an invasive species that's brought in from elsewhere. So the best way is just to consult organizations like the Colorado Native Plant Society. They have brochures with all the native plants. It's absolutely gorgeous. If you're unsure which plants those are or what they're going to look like in combination, you can certainly consult Colorado Native Plant Society. Denver Audubon does a little bit of work with them as well. And they have brochures that they've put together with a variety of different plants that are great for restoring some semblance of what would occur naturally in your garden and therefore provide a home for the birds that are going to move through your backyard. We need to think of our backyards as these these small oases, that very small patches of habitat that the birds can use. And the more of us that are doing that, the better off the birds are going to be. That makes sense because of the very beginning you said the most basic form of birding anyone can do is just going into their backyard and watching the birds fly around, go into the bird feeder or wherever they happen to hang out. If there happens to be corn on the ground or something. Exactly. Exactly. And uh, so that's two thirds for the birds. And I think also most importantly is just as much as you can do, right? Like if someone could have their lawn be completely native species, you know, would be probably ideal, right? Of course, that's the ideal situation, 100%. So Ryan, it sounds like you have some real good clarity, both around the 
why you're doing what you're doing and the what kind of clarity around your purpose. What I'm wondering is, do you feel like this clarity around your purpose has helped you have more confidence in setting boundaries where you need to, when you come to like, say, I can only commit to this much on this end. I can only commit to this much on that end. I'd say so. I think that's always a struggle that we all deal with. And it's one thing that I have not perfected yet. I I still see myself saying yes to things that maybe I shouldn't say yes to. And But I'm getting better. I think what's important is that I'm aware of that I'm doing this when I probably shouldn't be doing this, right? So certainly setting boundaries is something that has to be done in order to get things done. Otherwise, the world takes us for a ride. And Yeah, pretty much exactly. And, and we don't dictate what happens at the end of the day. I've been writing a book about my Peace Corps experience. And during the pandemic, that's that's what I did. I'd, I'd sit down and I would write every day. And I'm I'm very much into this book now. I'm nine chapters in and I'm envisioning it's going to be a 12 chapter book. So I'm, I'm, I'm almost finished with the book, but I just haven't been setting aside time to get it done. And that's one thing that I need to prioritize in my life. And I need to say no to other things so that I can actually sit down and make the time to write. Not only is it important to have that confidence and to set aside time and set the boundaries, but it's also important. I want everyone out there listening to gather from this is that even the people who have, who I'm interviewing, everyone that's kind of made some progress or, you know, created their vision, they're still part of that struggle, the struggle to have the confidence, the struggle to set the right boundaries, the struggle to be in the right mindset, the struggle to not slip back into some more regressive frequencies or fear-based mindset is something that we all encounter. And we all have that day where we said to ourselves, okay, I tended to go to the gym, but instead I watched a bunch of mindless videos that that happens to all of us. And so the key is not to excessively shame ourselves and to just understand that everyone's on a journey. No one's immune to it. Even the most successful person you'll see out there has probably had their moments of slippage. They had their moments where they they let some hours get away from them or they made a bad decision or they, they let the world take them for a ride for a few hours. Absolutely. You know, I think that it's, it's really important to have that vulnerability to say, listen, this happens to me. It's happened to me on, on many different occasions. And I am cognizant of the fact that it's happened to me and I, and I'm working to do better about it. And I'm, I'm trying to figure out why it is that that happens to me. And that is just, you know, the path of less resistance is often the easiest path. And we don't want to do what's hard. And then that ends up stressing us out because we haven't done what's hard. And then we know that we have more to do that's hard. <laughs> so yeah, if, if you can wake up in the morning and do the hardest thing that you have to do that day and get that out of the way, then you're off to a great start. You know, I think that's a good, that's, a good that's amazing yeah. because there are so many places in life where you encounter the same dichotomy where there's the easy way and then there's the right way. Usually the path of least resistance is also the path that's going to lead you to the least amount of fulfillment. The ultimately easiest thing to ever do is flip that on button on the television. So Ryan, I'd like to thank you for joining us. And I want to make sure my listeners also get a chance to um, get a hold of you or contact you. If anyone out there listening is interested in going on a birding experience in the near future. Absolutely. Yeah. So I can be reached at uh, ryan at gobirdingman.com. 
I think that's probably the the best way to directly contact me. Also, you can look at my website, which is gobirdingman.com. So you can actually see, you can get my contact, my, my phone number, my email is there. And also the number of products that I offer are there too. And then if you're interested in doing something that is just very, very specific, I'm also open to the idea of uh, just sort of customizing an adventure for you. So we can certainly talk. Um, so feel free to reach out to me whenever. Yep. And that's, that's birding man, not burning man. I don't know if anyone ever asked you about that. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I was, I was struggling to come up with a name for the company and uh, you know, a friend of mine was like, how about, how about birding man? Kind of like burning man. I was like, That's Oh really? Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, so it was kind of a spin on burning man because actually I, I absolutely love burning man and what burning man stands for. And many of the principles, the 10 principles of burning man yeah. and trying to live through this company, right. Things like you know, self-reliance and, you know, environmental respect and communal effort, you know, this idea of like radical inclusion, like anybody's welcome. You don't have to be an expert birder. Like we can all be at different yeah. levels and still have this wonderful journey to get together. So for me, Burning Man is, is an inspiration and that's kind of why I decided to take, take the name from oh, wow. Burning Man. Yeah. So it goes to show even that little goofy thing that pops into your head can sometimes be way more insightful than, than you even imagined, because I just thought, Oh yeah, burning, burning man, whatever. People <laughs> might get that mixed up. So I'm probably asking you about that. <laughs> 100%. Definitely. Well, Ryan, thank you so much for joining us today on actions antidotes. And I'd like to thank everyone out there for listening. I would like to encourage all the listeners out there to find whatever path, whether it be birding or any other uh, activity to address this uh, nature deficit disorder, which we didn't get around to talking about, but I'm sure we've all kind of had that thought. And I'd like to encourage you to step back in or tune back in to Actions Antidotes for more episodes where we'll talk with people who are following their passions and pursuing what they really want to pursue and oftentimes on the same struggle that we're all on and trying to set the right boundaries and set aside the time for what really matters and avoid some of these distractions or the um, sometimes overbearing expectations of some of the others in our lives. 